Let's turn now to the Holy Scriptures and read the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands." Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, and left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the face of God, should taste death for every man." For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. The Word of God that we consider this morning is verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have been considering the Heidelberg Catechism's instruction on the sacraments, and in particular the Lord's Supper, we have emphasized greatly our need to partake of, by faith, even by eating and drinking, the real flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ to partake of His body and His blood. And that, of course, we do this morning as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is administered. And the idea of Scripture and the sacraments and the instruction of the sacraments is that in partaking, we remember. We are to have brought to our mind in the very sign and the seal, the reality itself, to be able to contemplate on the marvel and the wonder of what is before us this morning. And among those things is to consider even the reality that we are here and have the ability to eat and drink, the desire even, the hunger and thirst that is supposed in eating and drinking. Now among those things we remember is the very reality that Christ died for us. It's obvious, there it is. What do we eat and what do we drink? We eat and drink the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, broken and shed, because He died. There it is. We partake of His flesh and blood, the very flesh and blood that He shed there on the cross. And that's often what comes to our mind. But here in our text this morning, the Holy Spirit brings before us something even more astounding, something that is there and implied, but we often and easily overlook as we eat and drink the body and the blood of Christ. And we overlook it because we are blind to the question of how is it even that he has flesh and blood. In other words, to partake of the flesh and blood of Christ this morning presupposes that the Son of God takes our flesh and blood in the first place. And why would he do that? In other words, it takes the grace of God and magnifies that grace by taking it to a level that we often don't think of, brings us even back further in the great mind and workings of God. For we read here that there is a prior and causal reason for even the death of the Son of God and our eating and drinking of His flesh and blood. And that is because long before that, long before we sinned long before the death of the Son of God. He took part of our flesh and blood. Before we partake, before we can partake of His flesh and blood, it is necessary that He 
partake of our flesh and blood. And that's what the text brings forth this morning. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood. Let's consider that this morning from the Word of God, Jesus partaking of our flesh and blood. And we notice that under three points. First, the humiliation that that is. Secondly, the mercy that that was. And finally, the effect, even the purpose. When we read what we do, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the steam, we ought to be astounded and stop and pause. That's what we ought to do before we even partake of his flesh and blood. And especially we ought to do so for the reason that the text brings it to our attention, that is, to see the humiliation of Christ, even of God Himself, that that required. Now to see that more fully, you have to connect what's being said here to the context. What is said here in our text is one of two conclusions to a lengthy exhortation that he has given in the previous chapter and that ends in the beginning of this chapter. That exhortation is that we must heed the Word of God, even the very call of God in the Gospel to believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son and heir of the world. That's how the book begins. Believe in Him. Believe in the Word of God. The Holy Gospel that announces Him and presents Him. Heed the call to believe rather than being unbelieving and not trusting in God for whatever reason. Either fear or because one believes that he can deliver himself out of his own misery. That's the exhortation. Now, the reason, the reason for that call, the urgency of it, is that the Apostle explains God has revealed this salvation to us by someone who is not simply an angel or a prophet. His point is that this word of God, this call of the gospel, has come before. It has come by holy prophets and holy angels. Servants of God who were sent to deliver that word of God. But now, God has done so by someone better, by His only begotten Son. One who is the brightness of God's own glory. The express image of His own person. Far then above the prophets and the angels. And one given far more power and authority than even the mighty angels with the power and authority that they were given from God. Those who were made spirits, spirits of fire, 
to carry out and executes God's righteous judgments in the earth. One now God has sent who is far, far above them. Then the Apostle makes two conclusions based on that. The first is that if the word spoken by the prophets and the angels was true, and God punished even the disobedience of the angels, how much more then will He punish those who reject His holy word, His holy gospel, when that gospel is delivered by one so much higher and more glorious than any man and any angel. He's giving there a reason why one ought to heed the Word of God to believe. The second, the second reason why one ought not to fear or remain in unbelief but believe on this Son of God is that given in our text. The text points to the humiliation and therefore the mercy of the Son of God in what He did. In other words, the one by whom God sends the gospel and the call of the gospel, the one who comes to the people of God and says, believe, believe on Him for the repentance of sin and deliverance from death, is one who partook of our flesh. And the whole point is, look at the humiliation that that required. And that, of course, flows also from what he said before. The angels, you see, are fiery spirits. They are not human beings. So when God sent His Word, it did not require them taking our flesh and blood. They are not like us. They are spirits. Whereas if God is going to send His Word by one, He must take our flesh and blood as a human being. Then He must take that flesh and blood as it is subject to sin and the bondage of man. That is what he sets forth. But now, this is done by one <clears throat> who himself is higher than the angels. One could even say, wouldn't it have been better for God? Wouldn't it make more sense of God to send His Word, to send His call, to set forth His own righteousness and judgments by an angel. Aren't they better equipped? Aren't they far more powerful to impress that word upon the heart of man? And the answer of God is no. No. What is necessary is that my son, who is higher than the angels, who is greater than any man, who is in fact the Creator Himself, and have Him partake of the very flesh and blood of those to whom He is sent. And therein lies the source and the ground for the awe and wonder 
of our celebration this morning at this incredible act of the Son of God humbling himself by partaking of our flesh and blood. That is the whole emphasis. God's own Son, the very brightness of His glory, needs to hide that glory to come unto us. He who has everlasting and eternal life without beginning and end must take flesh and blood that is mortal and taking flesh and blood being under the bondage of sin and under the curse of the law unto himself. He must empty himself as we read elsewhere in the Scriptures. Empty himself even unto death. That is the message of the Holy Gospel that comes with Jesus Christ. That I hope you see is the point of the prophet and apostle and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus speaks, when Jesus says, believe on me, he does not come simply as God, holy and righteous. Does not simply come even as a mighty, powerful angel before whom we ought to quake in fear. But he comes as the mighty and glorious God of heaven and earth, one who created the angels and yet took our flesh and blood below and lower than the angels. That's humiliation. Furthermore, the point of the text is that this is not an accident. This is not something even that God had to do according to His nature. But it was a conscious, deliberate decision of God. He did that which He did not need to do. Part of the Holy Gospel is that God would have done no unrighteousness whatsoever if He had simply let all men as they died in Adam to perish everlastingly. He did this knowing that He who had all power and authority must subject Himself to the power and authority of human beings. That he who had everlasting life must die. That he who has the glory of God himself must hide that glory. And if you ask, what is the basis of that decision? Did God just do this? The answer is no. No. God, of course, did not have to do this according to His own nature. If He had not done it, He still would be righteous. But God is also a merciful God. And God desires to reveal that mercy in this very way. You see, mercy is the only thing that explains this decision and act of God. And that's brought out by how the passage begins. For as much then, for as much 
then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same. The idea is that he nevertheless must do this. This is something that he must do, even though it will require great personal cost and great, great humiliation. And the must comes down to his own mercy. A mercy toward children. Children who partake of flesh and blood. The idea is that he does this not for any personal advantage to himself, but everything personally with regard to himself says really not to do it. But God looks, and when he looks at these children, the idea is he has pity, deep, deep pity for them in their distress and in their trouble. And because he sees their distress and trouble, he says, I will partake of their flesh and blood. I know it's difficult for us to understand because we're talking about what God does in time, even though He did it in eternity. But the Holy Spirit speaks thus, not without reason. He wants to impress upon us how God looks at things in eternity even. And the idea is that God had children. Children He made as flesh and blood. And those children are in distress and trouble because of their sin and their own misery. And thus they are in bondage to something. And that moves God in the depths of His being to do something that we could not and would not ever do. Something that is astounding and amazing, such as the mercy of God. Notice what the trouble is and what the distress is. What God sees is that His children are under the bondage of the fear of death. <clears throat> Please take note very carefully of that striking description of our trouble and distress. It actually is, as we often put it, that we are subject to sin and death itself. The text could have said that. Could have said, for as much then as the children who are of flesh and blood are under the trouble and distress of being subject to bondage of sin itself and of death. But that's not how it's put. It's that they're under bondage to the fear of death. Let's put that way for a reason. And that is, in the first place, to emphasize that our real trouble and our real distress is not simply that our bodies are under bondage. That the bondage that we are under is something that affects our physical being as such. That it affects us such that our bodies are going to die. But rather the idea of fear is fear is something in the soul, in the heart. And therefore this bondage is something that strikes at the very heart of man. The very inside of his being. 
is something that affects his soul as well as his body and all of his actions and all of his being. The idea is that even as mercy is an activity of the heart of God, which causes Jesus to act, which causes the Son of God to take our flesh, even so the children are under the bondage of fear in their own soul. Number two, the Apostle puts it this way by the inspiration of the Spirit to indicate really the depths of our bondage and also, therefore, to explain the source of sin. You see, we can look at sin and we're even able often to see the bondage of sin. It is not hard to miss once the gospel opens the eyes to see how powerful is the bondage of sin such that no man is able to serve or worship God no man is able to love God no man is able to do good before God no man is even willing to be saved except he is released from the bondage of sin the grip of sin the power of sin must be broken and therefore also the power of death itself. Because death is the wages of sin. So obviously we can see that by the Holy Gospel. Yes, for us to be saved, or to put it another way, to be delivered, our salvation must consist of being delivered from the bondage of sin and death. Not just that we must be forgiven our sins, with regard to sin and death, but actually the grip and power of sin and death itself must be broken, but there's more to it. If you ask what really is the power of the bondage, why is it that we actually sin, are now under the bondage of the sin, the answer is because we fear death. Did you ever look at it that way? Did you ever find yourself under the bondage of sin, some particular sin. Even though you might know the deliverance of God with regard to other sins, there's one particular sin that has a grip on you such that you cannot shake it. You wonder, what is going on? Or you ask yourself even, why is it that I can go to church and be filled with thanksgiving for God, for His great deliverance, and then I'm sinning again? What is going on? Well, part of the answer is you're a sinner. That's who you are in the depths of your being. And death proves it. But if one goes even deeper, the answer is because you're afraid of death. That's the real bondage. Why is it we come under the bondage of drugs and alcohol? Why is it that we become under the bondage of idols that we love to worship? Give ourselves wholeheartedly to the worship of money and pleasure. Why is it that we can be such worshipers of self, so proud and lifted up? Why is it that we're so busy trouncing on everybody else? The answer is because you're afraid of death. And that is the greater bondage. 
So much so that when God looks upon His children in distress, who are under the bondage of death, who under the bondage of sin, God sees something even deeper, looks into the heart, and He sees a fear of death and says, I must deliver them from that fear. Remember that. All fear, you see, is unbelief. Fear is unbelief. And all fear, doesn't matter what the object of that fear really is, is fear of death. And if one is to be freed from the grips and the power of sin and death, one has to be freed from the fear of that sin and death. And conversely, the point is that if one is delivered from the fear of sin and death, he's been delivered from sin and death. That is the mercy of God. Now that mercy of God also is taught in this passage to be particular. It is not a mercy of God toward all men head for head, but only those who believe in the Son of God. That's evident from the exhortation in the context to believe in Him. It's also evident from the very distinction that the Apostle, the Holy Spirit Himself, makes in the text between men and children. There are men who are flesh and blood, but when God comes to take our flesh and blood, it is not because all men partook of flesh and blood, but His children did. That also, you understand, is the explanation for why those who believe do believe. It answers the question, why is it when the call of gospel come to believe in the Son of God? The ultimate answer is because they're the children of God. and God gives them faith to believe. Nevertheless, that mercy of God, therefore, is particular. Not only that, but the idea of the text is it's effectual too. The Son of God did not come in our flesh to make salvation possible for the children so that it's possible that they may not fear death, but that they don't fear death. And that's the effect of this great mercy and decision of the Son of God. Jesus, by partaking of the same that is of our flesh and blood, did so that through His own death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So how is it that the Son of God delivers us from the fear of death? The answer is by giving Himself to death and thereby destroying him that has the power of death. You see how it works? You are in bondage. Who are you in bondage to? We say sin and death, or the fear of sin and death, but no, you're actually in bondage to the devil. If you want to know how the devil works and how he holds us in his grip, the answer is he uses the fear of death. He brings that fear of death to your mind. He impresses it upon your hearts. So to be delivered from the fear of death one must be delivered from the one who holds the power of that death, who has the ability to hold it over you and say, you're going to die, and you're going to die because you're a sinner. 
Jesus gives himself to that death to destroy him. That's what happened at the cross. When you see the shed blood and the broken body, don't look, first of all, just at the forgiveness of sins, but realize, as the text points out, that when he gave himself to death and implied is then rose again from the dead, he absolutely destroyed all the power of the devil over death. Now, as even the apostle himself says, we do not see that now. In other words, there's aspects of this that we do not see, that we must believe. We can only see by faith. That requires faith because it doesn't always seem that way. But the reality is, the power of the devil over death has been broken, shattered. And we're going to see that soon, too, in these latter days. We're going to see the great power of Jesus Christ over death, and therefore the destruction of the devil's power and grip over death. Secondly, that means, therefore, that we are, in fact, delivered from the fear of death. And notice that happens in our lifetime. This is a benefit that we have now, even as all our lifetime, we are subject to the fear of death, so also in our lifetime we are delivered from that fear of death. It's a continual thing. Jesus comes to us in our life time and time again and says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid of death. I have conquered death. I have destroyed death. I have the power over he who has the power over death. And what is that deliverance? That deliverance isn't merely the forgiveness of sins. But rather the idea is exactly because of the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus in his death forgives our sins by paying the penalty of those sins. There is nothing due for those sins anymore. Therefore, there is no need to fear death. You understand it? There's no need to fear death because there's no power in death to destroy you forever. There's no penalty, no wages of sin in that death. And now furthermore, there is a deliverance from the fear of death such that there is a sanctifying power in the death of the Son of God. Exactly because the fear of death is the bondage that holds us in the grips of sin, and that has been broken, the child of God is given the power to live a new and holy life. That there also is all found in the sacrament. It's all there. And that's the call of God to you this morning. The call of God is, see Jesus Christ here presented at His table. See His broken body. See His shed blood. There it is. And it testifies. It is a sign and seal of this Word of God that I preach to you. And the Word of God is, don't be unbelieving. Don't be unbelieving for whatever reason. Don't sit back there and say, well, I don't need that. I'm just perfectly fine. I can conquer the bondage of sin and the fear of death myself because you can't. But neither say, well, I'm going to stay away and I'm not going to eat and drink and I cannot partake because I'm a sinner because that too would deny the very broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ and the power 
the reality that he breaks the fear of death. That's exactly why the passage that we read and we considered this morning is followed by the Word of God to come unto him without fearing because he is a merciful high priest. There's his mercy. And his mercy is such that he did already what he did. Then our calling is to cast ourselves before him, believing that our sins, which deserve eternal damnation, have been paid for. And therefore, there is no reason to fear death, but only reason to believe that in the partaking of Jesus Christ, we are given eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, give us faith to partake of thy table this morning, believing in the very sign and the seal that is the reality by faith. And in so doing also, Father, strengthen our faith with the very nourishment of our Lord Jesus himself. So that in eating and drinking, by grace we partake, and of grace we partake. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.